Chapter 18 of Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 10. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 10, by John Hay and John George Nicolay. Chapter 18, Lincoln's Fame. The death of Lincoln awoke all over the world a quick and deep emotion of grief and admiration. If he had died in the days of doubt and gloom which preceded his re-election, he would have been sincerely mourned and praised by the friends of the Union, but its enemies would have curtly dismissed him as one of the necessary and misguided victims of sectional hate. They would have used his death to justify their malevolent forebodings, to point the moral of new lectures on the instability of democracies. But as he had fallen in the moment of a stupendous victory, the halo of a radiant success enveloped his memory and dazzled the eyes even of his most hostile critics. That portion of the press of England and the continent, which had persistently vilified him, now joined in the universal chorus of elegiac praise. Footnote. One of the finest poems on the occasion of his death was that in which the London Punch made its manly recantation of the slanders with which it had pursued him for four years. Quote, Beside this corpse that bears for winding-sheet The stars and stripes he lived to rear anew, Between the mourners at his head and feet, Say, scurrile jester, is there room for you? Yes, he had lived to shame me from my sneer, To lame my pencil and to confute my pen, To make me own this hind of prince's peer, This rail-splitter a true-born king of men. End quote. End footnote. Cabinets and courts, which had been cold or unfriendly, sent their messages of condolence. The French government, spurred on by their liberal opponents, took prompt measures to express their admiration for his character and their horror at his taking off. In the Senate and the Chamber of Deputies, the imperialists and the republicans vied with each other in utterances of grief and of praise. The emperor and the empress sent their personal condolences to Mrs. Lincoln. In England there was perhaps a trifle of self-consciousness at the bottom of the official expressions of sympathy. The foreign office searched the records for precedents, finding nothing which suited the occasion since the assassination of Henri IV. The sterling English character could not, so gracefully as the courtiers of Napoleon III, bend to praise one who had been treated almost as an enemy for so long. When Sir George Grey opened his dignified and pathetic speech in the House of Commons by saying that a majority of the people of England sympathized with the North, he was greeted with loud protestations and denials on the part of those who favored the Confederacy but his references to Lincoln's virtues were cordially received, and when he said that the Queen had written to Mrs. Lincoln with her own hand, as a widow to a widow, the house broke out in loud cheering. Mr. Disraeli spoke on behalf of the Conservatives with his usual dexterity and with a touch of factitious feeling. Quote, there is, he said, in the character of the victim, and even in the accessories of his last moments, something so homely and innocent that it takes the question, as it were, out of all the pomp of history and the ceremonial of diplomacy. It touches the heart of nations and appeals to the domestic sentiment of mankind. 
end quote. In the House of Lords, the matter was treated with characteristic reticence. The speech of Lord Russell was full of that rugged truthfulness, that unbending integrity of spirit, which appeared at the time to disguise his real friendliness to America, and which was only the natural expression of a mind extraordinarily upright, and English to the verge of caricature. Lord Derby followed him in a speech of curious elegance, the object of which was rather to launch a polished shaft against his opponents than to show honour to the dead president, and the address proposed by the government was voted. While these reserved and careful public proceedings were going on, the heart of England was expressing its sympathy with the kindred beyond sea by its thousand organs of utterance in the press, the resolutions of municipal bodies, the pulpit, and the platform. In Germany, the same manifestations were seen of official expressions of sympathy from royalty and its ministers, and of heartfelt affection and grief from the people and their representatives. Otto von Bismarck, then at the beginning of the events which have made his career so illustrious, gave utterance to the courteous regrets of the King of Prussia. The eloquent deputy, William Leuwe, from his place in the house, made a brief and touching speech. Quote, the man, he said, who accomplished such great deeds from the simple desire conscientiously to perform his duty, the man who never wished to be more nor less than the most faithful servant of his people will find his own glorious place in the pages of history. In the deepest reverence, I bow my head before this modest greatness, and I think it is especially agreeable to the spirit of our own nation, with its deep inner life and admiration of self-sacrificing devotion, and effort after the ideal, to pay the tribute of veneration to such greatness, exalted as it is by simplicity and modesty." End quote. 250 members of the chamber signed an address to the American minister in Berlin, full of the cordial sympathy and admiration felt not only for the dead president, but for the national cause by the people of Germany. Quote, you are aware, they said, that Germany has looked with pride and joy on the thousands of her sons who in this struggle have placed themselves so resolutely on the side of law and right. You have seen with what pleasure the victories of the Union have been hailed, and how confident the faith in the final triumph of the great cause, and the restoration of the Union in all its greatness, has ever been, even in the midst of calamity. Workingmen's clubs, artisans' unions, sent numberless addresses, not merely expressive of sympathy, but conveying singularly just appreciations of the character and career of Lincoln. His death seemed to have marked a step in the education of the people everywhere. In fact, it was among the common people of the entire civilized world that the most genuine and spontaneous manifestations of sorrow and appreciation were produced, and to this fact we attribute the sudden and solid foundation of Lincoln's fame. It requires years, perhaps centuries, to build the structure of a reputation which rests upon the opinion of those distinguished for learning or intelligence. The progress of opinion from the few to the many is slow and painful. But in the case of Lincoln, the many imposed their opinion all at once. He was canonized, as he lay on his bier, by the irresistible decree of countless millions. The greater part of the aristocracy of England thought little of him, 
but the burst of grief from the English people silenced in an instant every discordant voice. It would have been as imprudent to speak slightingly of him in London as it was in New York. Especially among the dissenters was honor and reverence shown to his name. The humbler people instinctively felt that their order had lost its wisest champion. Not only among those of Saxon blood was this outburst of emotion seen. In France, a national manifestation took place, which the government disliked, but did not think it wise to suppress. The students of Paris marched in a body to the American legation to express their sympathy. A two-cent subscription was started to strike a massive gold medal. The money was soon raised, but the committee was forced to have the work done in Switzerland. A committee of French liberals brought the medal to the American minister to be sent to Mrs. Lincoln. Quote, Tell her, said Eugène Pelletan, the heart of France is in that little box. End quote. The inscription had a double sense. While honoring the dead Republican, it struck at the Empire. Quote, Lincoln, the honest man, abolished slavery, re-established the Union, saved the Republic without veiling the Statue of Liberty. End quote. Everywhere on the continent, the same swift apotheosis of the people's hero was seen. An Austrian deputy said to the writer, quote, among my people, his memory has already assumed superhuman proportions. He has become a myth, a type of ideal democracy. End quote. Almost before the earth closed over him, he began to be the subject of fable. The Freemasons of Europe generally regard him as one of them. His portrait in Masonic garb is often displayed, yet he was not one of that brotherhood. The spiritualists claim him as their most illustrious adept but he was not a spiritualist. And there is hardly a sect in the Western world, from the Calvinist to the Atheist, but affects to believe he was of their opinion. A collection of the expressions of sympathy and condolence which came to Washington from foreign governments, associations, and public bodies of all sorts was made by the State Department and afterward published by order of Congress. It forms a large quarto of a thousand pages, and embraces the utterances of grief and regret from every country under the sun, in almost every language spoken by man. But, admired and venerated as he was in Europe, he was best understood and appreciated at home. It is not to be denied that in his case, as in that of all heroic personages who occupy a great place in history, a certain element of legend mingles with his righteous fame. He was a man, in fact, especially liable to legend. We have been told by farmers in central Illinois that the brown thrush did not sing for a year after he died. He was gentle and merciful, and therefore he seems in a certain class of annals to have passed all his time in soothing misfortune and pardoning crime. He had more than his share of the shrewd native humor, and therefore the loose jest books of two centuries have been ransacked for anecdotes to be attributed to him. He was a great and powerful lover of mankind, especially of those not favored by fortune. One night he had a dream, which he repeated the next morning to the writer of these lines, which quaintly illustrates his unpretending and kindly democracy. He was in some great assembly. The people made a lane to let him pass. He is a common-looking fellow, someone said. Lincoln, in his dream, turned to his critic and replied, in his Quaker phrase, Friend, the Lord prefers common-looking people. 
That is why he made so many of them. He that abases himself shall be exalted, because Lincoln kept himself in such constant sympathy with the common people, whom he respected too highly to flatter or mislead, he was rewarded by a reverence and a love hardly ever given to a human being. Among the humble working people of the South, whom he had made free, this veneration and affection easily passed into the supernatural. At a religious meeting among the Negroes of the Sea Islands, a young man expressed the wish that he might see Lincoln. A gray-headed Negro rebuked the rash aspiration. Quote, no man see Lincoln. Lincoln walk as Jesus walk. No man see Lincoln. End quote. But leaving aside these fables, which are a natural enough expression of a popular awe and love, it seems to us no more just estimate of Lincoln's relation to his time has ever been made, or perhaps ever will be, than that uttered by one of the wisest and most American of thinkers, Ralph Waldo Emerson, a few days after the assassination. We cannot forbear quoting a few words of this remarkable discourse, which shows how Lincoln seemed to the greatest of his contemporaries. Quote, a plain man of the people, an extraordinary fortune attended him. Lord Bacon says, manifest virtues procure reputation, occult ones fortune. His occupying the chair of state was a triumph of the good sense of mankind and of the public conscience. He grew according to the need. His mind mastered the problem of the day. As the problem grew, so did his comprehension of it. Rarely was a man so fitted to the event. It cannot be said that there is any exaggeration of his worth. If ever a man was fairly tested, he was. There was no lack of resistance, nor of slander, nor of ridicule. And what an occasion was the whirlwind of the war, here was no place for holiday magistrate or fair-weather sailor. The new pilot was hurried to the helm in a tornado. In four years, four years of battle days, his endurance, his fertility of resources, his magnanimity were sorely tried and never found wanting. There by his courage, his justice, his even temper, his fertile counsel, his humanity, he stood a heroic figure in the center of a heroic epoch. He is the true history of the American people in his time, the true representative of this continent, father of his country, the pulse of twenty millions throbbing in his heart, the thought of their minds articulated by his tongue. The quick instinct by which the world recognized him, even at the moment of his death, as one of its greatest men, was not deceived. It has been confirmed by the sober thought of a quarter of a century, the writers of each nation compare him with their first popular hero. The French find points of resemblance in him to Henri IV. The Dutch liken him to William of Orange. The cruel stroke of murder and treason by which all three perished at the height of their power naturally suggests the comparison, which is strangely justified in both cases, though the two princes were so widely different in character. Lincoln had the wit the bonhomie, the keen practical insight into affairs of the Béarnais, and the tyrannous moral sense, the wide comprehension, the heroic patience of the Dutch patriot, whose motto might have served equally well for the American president, Saives tranquillus in undis. 
European historians speak of him in words reserved for the most illustrious names. Marle d'Aubigné says, quote, The name of Lincoln will remain one of the greatest that history has to inscribe on its annals. Henri Martin predicts nothing less than a universal apotheosis. Quote, this man will stand out in the traditions of his country and the world as an incarnation of the people and of modern democracy itself. Emilio Castellar, in an oration against slavery in the Spanish Cortes, called him quote, the humblest of the humble before his conscience, greatest of the great before history. In this country, where millions still live who were his contemporaries, and thousands who knew him personally, where the envies and jealousies which dog the footsteps of success still linger in the hearts of a few, where journals still exist that loaded his name for four years with daily calumny, and writers of memoirs vainly try to make themselves important by belittling him, his fame has become as universal as the air, as deeply rooted as the hills. The faint discords are not heard in the wide chorus that hails him second to none, and equaled by Washington alone. The eulogies of him form a special literature. Preachers, poets, soldiers, and statesmen employ the same phrases of unconditional love and reverence. Men speaking with the authority of fame use unqualified superlatives. Lowell, in an immortal ode, calls him, quote, New birth of our new soil, the first American, end quote. General Sherman says, quote, Of all the men I ever met, he seemed to possess more of the elements of greatness combined with goodness than any other. End quote. General Grant, after having met the rulers of almost every civilized country on earth, said Lincoln impressed him as the greatest intellectual force with which he had ever come in contact. He is spoken of with scarcely less of enthusiasm by the more generous and liberal spirits among those who revolted against his election and were vanquished by his power. General Longstreet calls him, quote, the greatest man of rebellion times, the one matchless among forty millions for the peculiar difficulties of the period, end quote. An eminent southern orator, referring to our mixed northern and southern ancestry, says, quote, from the union of those colonists, from the straightening of their purposes and the crossing of their blood, slowly perfecting through a century, came he who stands as the first typical American, the first who comprehended within himself all the strength and gentleness, all the majesty and grace of this republic, Abraham Lincoln. End quote. It is not difficult to perceive the basis of this sudden and worldwide fame, or rash to predict its indefinite duration. There are two classes of men whose names are more enduring than any monument, the great writers, and the men of great achievement, the founders of states, the conquerors. Lincoln has the singular fortune to belong to both these categories. Upon these broad and stable foundations his renown is securely built. Nothing would have more amazed him while he lived than to hear himself called a man of letters, but this age has produced few greater writers. We are only recording here the judgment of his peers. Emerson ranks him with Aesop and Pilpai in his lighter moods, and says, quote, The weight and penetration of many passages in his letters, messages, and speeches, hidden now by the very closeness of their application to the moment, are destined to a wide fame. 
what pregnant definitions, what unerring common sense, what foresight, and on great occasions, what lofty and more than national, what human tone. His brief speech at Gettysburg will not easily be surpassed by words on any recorded occasion. End quote. His style extorted the high praise of French academicians. Montalembert commended it as a model for the imitation of princes. Many of his phrases form part of the common speech of mankind. It is true that in his writings the range of subjects is not great. He is concerned chiefly with the political problems of the time and the moral considerations involved in them. But the range of treatment is remarkably wide. It runs from the wit, the gay humor, the florid eloquence of his stump speeches, to the marvelous sententiousness and brevity of the letter to Greeley and the address at Gettysburg, and the sustained and lofty grandeur of the second inaugural. The more his writings are studied in connection with the important transactions of his age, the higher will his reputation stand in the opinion of the lettered class. But the men of study and research are never numerous, and it is principally as a man of action that the world at large will regard him. It is the story of his objective life that will forever touch and hold the heart of mankind. His birthright was privation and ignorance, not peculiar to his family, but the universal environment of his place and time. He burst through those enchaining conditions by the force of native genius and will. Vice had no temptation for him. His course was as naturally upward as the skylarks. He won, against all conceivable obstacles, a high place in an exacting profession and an honorable position in public and private life. He became the foremost representative of a party founded on an uprising of the national conscience against a secular wrong, and thus came to the awful responsibilities of power in a time of terror and gloom. He met them with incomparable strength and virtue caring for nothing but the public good free from envy or jealous fears he surrounded himself with the leading men of his party his most formidable rivals in public esteem and through four years of stupendous difficulties he was head and shoulders above them all in the vital qualities of wisdom foresight knowledge of men and thorough comprehension of measures personally opposed as the radicals claim by more than half of his own party in Congress, and bitterly denounced and maligned by his open adversaries, he yet bore himself with such extraordinary discretion and skill that he obtained for the government all the legislation it required, and so impressed himself upon the national mind that without personal effort or solicitation he became the only possible candidate of his party for re-election, and was chosen by an almost unanimous vote of the electoral colleges. His qualities would have rendered his administration illustrious, even in time of peace. But when we consider that in addition to the ordinary work of the executive office, he was forced to assume the duties of commander-in-chief of the national forces engaged in the most complex and difficult war of modern times, the greatness of spirit, as well as the intellectual strength he evinced in that capacity, is nothing short of prodigious. After times will wonder, not at the few and unimportant mistakes he may have committed, but at the intuitive knowledge of his business that he displayed. We would not presume to express a personal opinion in this matter, 
we use the testimony only of the most authoritative names. General W.T. Sherman has repeatedly expressed the admiration and surprise with which he has read Mr. Lincoln's correspondence with his generals, and his opinion of the remarkable correctness of his military views. General W.F. Smith says, quote, I have long held the opinion that at the close of the war Mr. Lincoln was the superior of his generals in his comprehension of the effect of strategic movements and the proper method of following up victories to their legitimate conclusions. General J. H. Wilson holds the same opinion, and Colonel Robert N. Scott, in whose lamented death the army lost one of its most vigorous and best-trained intellects, frequently called Mr. Lincoln the ablest strategist of the war. To these qualifications of high literary excellence and easy practical mastery of affairs of transcendent importance, we must add as an explanation of his immediate and worldwide fame his possession of certain moral qualities rarely combined in such high degree in one individual. His heart was so tender that he would dismount from his horse in a forest to replace in their nest young birds which had fallen by the roadside. He could not sleep at night if he knew that a soldier boy was under sentence of death. He could not, even at the bidding of duty or policy, refuse the prayer of age or helplessness and distress. Children instinctively loved him. They never found his rugged features ugly. His sympathies were quick and seemingly unlimited. He was absolutely without prejudice of class or condition. Frederick Douglass says that he was the only man of distinction he ever met who never reminded him by word or manner of his color. He was as just and generous to the rich and well-born as to the poor and humble, a thing rare among politicians. He was tolerant even of evil, though no man can have lived with a loftier scorn of meanness and selfishness, he yet recognized their existence and counted with them. He said one day, with a flash of cynical wisdom worthy of La Rochefoucauld, that honest statesmanship was the employment of individual meanness for the public good. He never asked perfection of anyone. He did not even insist for others upon the high standards he set up for himself. At a time before the word was invented, he was the first of opportunists. With the fire of a reformer and a martyr in his heart, he yet proceeded by the ways of cautious and practical statecraft. He always worked with things as they were, while never relinquishing the desire and effort to make them better to a hope which saw the delectable mountains of absolute justice and peace in the future, to a faith that God in his own time would give to all men the things convenient to them, he added a charity which embraced in its deep bosom all the good and the bad, all the virtues and the infirmities of men, and a patience like that of nature, which in its vast and fruitful activity knows neither haste nor rest. A character like this is among the precious heirlooms of the Republic, and by a special good fortune, every part of the country has an equal claim and pride in it. Lincoln's blood came from the veins of New England emigrants, of Middle State Quakers, of Virginia planters, of Kentucky pioneers. He himself was one of the men who grew up with the earliest growth of the Great West. Every jewel of his mind or his conduct sheds radiance on each portion of the nation. 
the marvellous symmetry and balance of his own intellect and character may have owed something to this varied environment of his race and they may fitly typify the variety and solidity of the republic it may not be unreasonable to hope that his name and his renown may be forever a bond of union to the country which he loved with an affection so impartial and served in life and in death with such entire devotion End of chapter 18. Recording by Owen Cook. In Potawatomi ceded land, and in a state known as the land of Lincoln. End of Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 10, by John Hay and John George Nicolay.